Smitty was like, you got a guy? You could see it right there. He was like, he did not have a guy. <laughs> You're right. Mad Men, a term coined in the late 1950s to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. Well, I would love to work all weekend, but I'm just a spectator. Welcome to They Coined It. <laughs> How are you, Roberta? I'm a little extra peppy this morning. Sounds it. I had a, I had a little walk. I, I had a little Dunkin' Donuts. Listen. Got a little pep in your step. All right, good. I'm, I'm vaccinated. Mazel tov. That's, pheno- that's phenomenal. I get, I start the process Tuesday. It's very exciting. And it just makes going out so much less stressful than, yeah. it, than it has been. And, you know, other people got more acclimated to being out, but I, I didn't. So I've like, it's been this, I've been sort yeah. of, I've yeah. been sort of a podcasting hermit, Dan. <laughs> um, so yeah. Troglodyte. So you know this episode has these performances, these mostly musical numbers, right? Oh yeah, this is totally Mad Men the musical, yes. That are (laughs) dotted throughout. You got Roger and Jane and Pete and Trudy. So we'll talk about that, obviously. But what I didn't, I was thinking of the concept of just performing, of just the Mm -hmm. idea of you're performing for another. And I think Don doing his little old fashioned with Connie at the bar, that's a performance too. There's, There's a performative aspect to it. I think he is putting on a little bit of a show. He hops over the bar, which Connie calls him out on. Making that drink is a performance, right? He steps out of the other performance he's forced to do every day of his life and today the most. I'm at a party pretending to be a whatever and business pretending to be a wedding, all that. Yeah. But then you're right. He sort of dons, if you will, an, another another persona. And the way he makes the drink and everything, it's it's there's a little cocktail there's there. A little, little look at me. Little Tom Cruise. Uh... <laughs> that's right. But that's the kind of shit that's all over this episode. You know, there's just so many layers and so much great stuff. It's been so long since I've seen this. And by the way, let's just start off on this disclaimer thing. There was publicity that this, like, I already knew that this was going to have the disclaimer. It was just interesting to see it. Um, It was extensive and committed. And And it was up there for five minutes. And it was up there for five minutes. Well, I was like, are they going to give me enough time to read it? And they did. Uh, They gave you enough time to transcribe it. The first time you see this episode and the most recent time you see this episode (laughs) and every time you see this episode in between, it is shocking. This was extra ugly. So- I think we might have different takes on this because I saw that disclaimer and I read it, you know, for a series whose hallmark is sort of respecting the intelligence of the audience. Yes. And pushing the lines of of offensive for the storytelling. But always being careful that it works. It's never gratuitous. Never gratuitous. And this wasn't gratuitous. You know, respect is always top concern, but I'm not down with everything on the cancel culture thing. I have lines that I draw where it's sometimes it's all right, sometimes I'm not I'm not as all right with it. This one I do not they're not canceling it, but calling it out to me as an audience member and a viewer, I almost felt like insulted that they had to say that. It's sort of like can I not determine that this that this artistically works the way it's supposed to? I mean the whole thing it was like it was like 200 words this disclaimer. It was not a short disclaimer of like, you know, mature audiences only kind of thing. This was like over explaining it. And I'm just sort of like this is insane. The work speaks for itself in this case. They're not glorifying it. There's people who within the show that are offended by it appropriately within the context. I'm kind of like this is this is silly. I really thought it was silly. And honestly, I don't even know if this falls into the category of cancel culture. So 
I, I, I reserve the fact, the right to be completely incorrect about that. Cause I don't know if, the, if this is that. So just first to briefly address the phrase cancel culture, it is a broadly and sloppily applied term that is being weaponized against anybody that it wants to be applied to. And I'm, I'm just, I'm addressing this. Cancel culture as a phenomenon is either accountability and responsibility for past and present trespasses, or it's being weaponized. So that's part one. Part one is I just wanted to deal with the phrase cancel culture. I just want to get on the record with that. And I know I full know where you're coming from. Absolutely. 100%. And the weaponizing thing for me is insane. So I don't, that's not where I'm coming from either. But you used a word there. It is to address trespasses. What I'm saying is there was no trespass. That is my, that is my issue. As for what you're saying, it didn't strike me in all those ways as intensely. I think that they were probably faced with the choice of either editing the episode around it or not airing the episode, which is obviously unacceptable. Both much worse than what they had to do, yeah. That would perhaps be a valid use of cancel culture or of canceling, right? A valid use of the word. I'm not saying a valid application of the Yeah, practice. that would be an instance of <laughs> right. actually canceling it, like you like you no longer have access to this content. So I think this was the remedy to that. And yes, it was heavily, I'm sure, negotiated. And it would have been cool if like you and I had written it and been like, hey guys, this is Mad Men. We are showing you racism because racism was there. And we are showing you an ugly slice of it and we know it's shocking and awful, and that's the fucking point. That's why you watch this show. Right, exactly. For respecting the audience a little bit. It ended up being written as if a space alien landed on the planet and had never seen the show and needed to understand what this Roger character was all about. So it ends up sounding ridiculous. I ridiculous. am on board with you, Dan Jasper. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> anyway, My Old Kentucky Home was written by Davi Waller and Matthew Weiner. Director was Jennifer Getzinger, another phenomenal female director. Original air date, uh, August 30th, 2009, and takes place May 3rd and 4th, 1963. And we never even find out who wins the Derby that year. I'm sure we could look it up, but never seems to get mentioned in all the hoo-ha. So, quick recap. This is the episode that centers around Roger's Derby Day party at the country club. What could go wrong? As one does. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, at the same time, Peggy and Smitty and Paul are stuck working on the Bacardi Creative over the weekend, so they're there. And Joan and Greg have the doctors, I guess, from the hospital, Greg's boss and his colleague, over to entertain them at their apartment. And we also see Sally and Jean do a little bonding thing. That's a... I love those scenes. I am absolutely enchanted by those scenes between Kieran and Shipka and, gosh, I really should know Gene's the actor who plays. But John I McCain. John McCain. Um, they're beautiful scenes and they need to be called out because they're phenomenal. And we've mentioned this before. Kieran and Shipka is sort of like her arc as a, not just as a character. As an actor. Sally, yeah. but as an actor. I think this is the episode where you start to see some really insane chops on this child actor. The story of Karen and Shipka is they cast her when she was like four, five, six years old, whatever she was, and in season one, you know, and you never know what you're going to get with a five-year-old actor or a six-year-old actor. You don't know what starts off as like charm and performative as a little kid turns into actual talent. And so they started writing to her abilities. 
you started to see it in the smoking episode, but I agree with you. This was like, we got it. We got a gem on our hands and we're going to, we're going to give her that story. Sitting there with her grandfather and reading that completely inappropriate <laughs> book and the the $5, the, really the way she looks at the money and takes it, the looks on her face and some of the moments, just little moments that she has of really being a, whatever she is, a seven or eight year old child in this unusual situation with her grandfather staying with her. And it also recalls to mind that, and, and Mad Men does this a lot. They they do things through the eyes of the kids, or they or they take they take a moment to show children in the series, typically Sally and her brother, whoever the Bobby of the week is, observing the grown-ups doing stuff. They take a moment to show the kids seeing what's going on. Betty breaking the chair, they focus on the kids. You know, whatever it is, they're always sort of taking their perspective a little bit or just making note of their observations. And here you know, you see Sally observing the parents having this discussion over the $5 or how do I handle this or blah, blah, blah. And you see a lot going on in her face and her in her actions and the, the way it comes out. These moments are really wonderful. And you know that Sally, the character, is going to remember sitting on her grandfather's bed or next to him reading this this wacky book he had me read. But that was time we'd spent together. It would be half hour a night or 10 pages a night or whatever it was. But he stayed with us for as long as he stayed with us. And I would do this and we would do this together. And that was really special. And you just know that the character's going to grow up with that. With that memory of her grandfather. And what was Betty's line? Don't bother him? Yeah, well, <laughs> doesn't mean the parents are going to get it. <laughs> that is so foreign to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, that's Betty's waspiness, which we will see on full display in this episode. Like, I understand that that he's unwell and she's got that kind of perspective of him. And I could understand putting in protective measures around this, mm. this, this man that has dementia, this grabby man who has dementia, by the way. Like, I could mm. see maybe putting some better structures in place, but I don't understand... Don't love up on your grandfather. Well, Matthew Weiner has said many times, like, this is a generation brought up on Go Watch TV, right? And in fact, she says that in this episode at one point, Go Watch TV. Like, it's always kind of get out, get out of my hair kind of thing. That's one slice of the generation. I was- You're younger than Sally. I'm definitely, I'm trying to remember who, <laughs> who I'm the same age. No, I'm definitely younger than Sally Draper, for sure. But I'm close enough that I'm telling you, this is a waspy thing. This isn't everybody. Yeah, no, it's I think it's I think it's all those things. I, I think it's all these we things. We were not sure. told to go watch TV. My mom had a real sense of like too much TV is too much TV. And again, it's the 70s, not the 60s, but we were encouraged to have relationships with our grandparents, you know, loving good connections. I think Betty's just so self-centered. I mean, he's peeling potatoes in the middle of the night. Like, I think there's a lot of that. That's very funny. <laughs> to be concerned about. But here's the thing. He's obviously wrestling with the dementia and they're dealing with, you know, he's pouring the booze out one night. He's, he's peeling potatoes the next night. It's not easy. That said, he noticed $5 that was taken when it was actually taken. This is that thing I was talking about, like Sopranos reference number one. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> where you don't get a consistent measure of what's going on. He's going to zig when he should be zagging and you don't expect it. And he's right on top of the $5. He was right. He had every right to call it out. He might have been a little a little enthusiastic about, about it. But um, no, he, he noticed it because it was real. What do demented old people get, get, get concerned about? People stealing their money. <laughs> they make shit up. The only zag that Gene had was calling 
Carla Viola, right? (laughs) We're going to get into the themes of this episode. And for me, the main theme is class stuff, power, privilege, who's in, who's out, who's excluded, who's permitted, all of that. That's going to be everywhere. And the racism is part of that. And what was very clear to me is that Carla could have lost her job over this. Oh, sure. She knew it. And she knew it. If he had decided... Could go the wrong way very quickly. He would have made that happen. And they would have regretted it and said, they were sorry, Carla, this isn't fair. We know you probably didn't do it, but bye-bye. Which you're teetering. You're waiting for that to happen. You're waiting for that to happen. It's just her her position was so precarious because she can't wash that black face off. She's that's who she gets to be in that fucking household. You know, the fact that we've already seen this black face scene totally unrelated, having nothing to do with what's going on in the Draper's house. But it's a cue to the viewer of like, oh, shit, these were some really friggin backward thinking, you know, racially insane times. And yeah, $5, Carla could be fired over much less. She's gone by the end of this episode. As a viewer, as a close watcher, you could put those things together and you would not be wrong, you know? It was right there. But I I agree. I think the Sally and Jean stuff, ultimately, there's also the the money aspect of it, which is, is the sort of unspoken part of all the hierarchy and class stuff. And here's Sally trying to trying to get money, trying to have money and trying to feel what having money feels like. It's it's having money and it's what kids that age do, which is how much do these grown-ups pay attention to stuff? If I were to take this, do they even know? You know, can I can I do a little experiment here? I mean it happens all the time. I did it. Who does know how much is in their money clip exactly? Yeah, like exactly. I mean what that was such a great kind of character piece about Gene Hofstad Gene Hofstad yeah. knows. <laughs> so I agree. It's it's a lot of class. It's a lot of the privileged stuff. It's also a lot of old versus new. You know, we saw that in Love Among the Ruins last week in that episode, but I think this is kind of even a more black and white, stark type of uh, version of that. Smitty calls out, right? You know, Derby Day, you guys going back in time? And you, we are going back in time. That's exactly what we're doing, is going back in time. Yeah. But these these musical numbers and these little performances, it's a, a bit of a... um time machine going back and forth with these things. You see something completely anachronistic like what with what Roger does. You see something very youthful like with what Pete and Trudy do, which is the Charleston, which is still 40 years old at this point. That's not exactly <laughs> contemporary for 1963. That's right. And look, they're doing it because they're kind of being the corporate couple. This is showing that we're we're sociable Pete wants to be a partner. There's no question about that. Trudy's right there with him, probably a step ahead of him. And this is what you do. You perform for your master a little bit at, at a party like this. So so all of these things are happening at once. You're going yeah. backwards. You're going forward. And you'll see it throughout all the scenarios, the old and new. The two, These two themes we're going to play out through all the different scenes. This episode, what I love is you've really got these four storylines. And we've covered one of them. Gene and Sally is the first one. You've got the office weekend, you've got the derby party, and you've got Joan and Dr. McRape's party. (laughs) We'll walk through all of those. We do have a beautiful piece, and we're going to put it in show notes, written by Anne B. I would say she was the writer with, with the most heart. You would read one of her blog posts, and all you did was feel. 
And that was what Anne B. brought to the table as a, as a writer every time. And she did a beautiful comparison this episode to A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is obviously a topic of conversation in, in the actual episode. You said it, I think, last week. Anytime there's a literary reference, that's a clue, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? right? To like right. pay attention to. Yeah, it was more than just Connie uh, idly mentioning it and pulled it all together in this post. It's this journey into the forest and different things and different parties yeah. and different love things. We could have done this discussion of this episode entirely within that framework. Yeah. Because it was so thorough, the way that she did it. You know, we all started at the same time. I've been here six years longer than you. They hate creative. So the office, you know, the first, the other way I got pointed right to the theme of insider and outsider and hierarchy was, Harry, you are not in this process. You're a spectator. Right. Don't forget <laughs> it. I hear a line like that and I go, oh, that sounds like a theme. So yeah, let's talk about the office. <laughs> that was an adventure. Well, these are the outsiders. They do not get to go to the derby party. And um, it's sort of like under the surface with Paul, right? When he calls this friend, because he's trying to pose as this Again, the, the, out in Montclair and this hip sort of uber hipster, whatever, whatever that he does, likes to make it seem like, oh, I smoke all the time or I'm, a, you know, I'm all into this drug scene. And then the drug dealer comes along and he's like, I never hear from you. What's going on? I know what's, where, where, where you been? Because he's a poser and he's full of shit. He has no idea where to get any. So he, so he does he does get this guy to come. But they've got this whole thing about. The tiger tones and why he got kicked out and whatever. And I guess, um, you know, the biggest insult you could say to somebody at that time was uh, you can't sing. I guess that was big, <laughs> really calling him under the carpet. Wasn't it that Paul was there on scholarship? Yeah, there's that, too. So right away, that class thing was was yeah, part totally of it. Yeah, class thing. And then Peggy, where did you go to? Peggy didn't even go to, to university. And he makes fun of Paul's accent. You're from Joyzy, and which is weird because Princeton's in New Jersey. So why would you? But anyway, that is true. I thought this was a wonderful uh, Michael Gladys episode. It was performance. phenomenal. And mohair, we get him mohair. There's mohair. a there's there's uh, <laughs> he told us that he he had to do the mohair line. He had to do the mohair take about 50 times that there was something that Davi Waller and Jennifer Getzinger wanted and he, he, he didn't know what it was. And, and apparently Charles Collier from the network, from AMC, who, who we've met, he would watch the dailies and he saw Michael like the next day and said to him, it's mohair. And Michael was like, oh, my God, he saw all 50 takes. And it instantly became this thing that everybody would say to him all the time. Anyway, it was hilarious. It was hilarious. But uh, yeah, there was the school ranking part and then the singing. Exactly. And of all the little performances, I felt this, It was to me, that this always felt the most stilted in the sense of like, I don't know, these two wouldn't be doing this, but but it was more to, it was more to the point of of Paul needing to save his own dignity somehow, right? You can't sing. It doesn't seem like a huge cut into somebody, but I guess if you were in the Tiger Tones, maybe it was. But the fact that Paul felt he had to save his own his own honor here, his own chops by by doing this was interesting to me. It felt stilted, you know. All the others looked like they could have actually happened. This yeah, one. it was hard to tell because 
I know, I know what you're saying. I had the same reaction, but I had the same reaction about doing the play in Nixon versus Kennedy, but everybody was all in. I think there's still the cultural unrecognizability about live performing, you know, as we transitioned into the era of television. I think people were more spontaneous with stuff yeah, and, perhaps, and more exactly. proud of their own, their own things. That was, that was where I took it. Like the older doctor's wife says, oh, we used to sit around and sing by the piano, you know, which is totally true. It's a form of entertainment. It's so rare in our culture. You've got musical families, you've got people with pianos and guitars, but mostly, except for like Christmas carols, people don't gather and sing. That's why going to a live sing-along piano bar, which I swear <laughs> to God I'm going to do soon, <laughs> yeah. um, is 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 such a moving experience because it is just so uncommon in this culture. That's right. That's right. I wanted to back up mm. because- not to be neglected, is Jane and Joan. Oh, boy. This show is so, as we always say, it's it's so great at respecting the audience's intelligence. So at some point, Joan was going to get married, and the next thing, Joan is married. And then same with this, right? All of a sudden, she's Mrs. Sterling. And she comes in in that outfit that sort of classy clown. I don't even I don't even know. I'm sure much has been written about that outfit. About that hat. That hat <laughs> is a journey. But it is another reminder of how Joan has been squashed down in the last year, which we've we've talked about in terms of what happened in the office, what happened between Jane and Joan originally, and and where this is going to go this episode for Joan. Very prominent, as we've said in the episode, is this class discussion. And you get the discussion later on between Roger and Don, where it's very overt. And other other little things like this, being in, being out, uh, the scholarship. And it's like, okay, these are all these little data points. These are all these little moments. But what do they add up to? I'm not, I was never really sure what they were saying about this stuff. Okay, there's class differences. Okay, you're in or you're out. Okay, Roger's rich and likes to have throw parties at country clubs. And Don didn't grow up that way. And where does this all land? What's the synthesis of all this? And for me, when you mentioned Jane, who, who worked for Joan not many episodes ago. Who Joan fired. And who Joan fired. And who was completely insubordinate toward Joan on top of it. Where this lands, all these data points on class. It's about class, but it's also about class in America and mobility. You can change your class or not, but there is this type of transitioning. There is this type of up and down changing of your status, including Peggy, right? I went to Miss Deaver's, you know, Paul and Jeff, you got Paul and Jeffrey who went to an Ivy League school. Paul mentions, why are all those guys doing better than me? He says, he says, we all started at the same time. That was his other colleagues. Advancement, mobility, how you get where you get. And you've got Paul who went to Ivy League bemoaning others, you know, moving up faster than he, but he's stuck there on a Saturday with Peggy who did not go to college. And there's her advancement kind of in relief. You're seeing how, how quickly she's moving with the secretary and everything else. I'm beginning to see that's how those dots connect. It's not just random comments about class. It's about your station can change. You could get snapped up by the by the boss and <laughs> and have your car circle, you know, and get nosebleeds over 86th Street, all that kind of stuff. Look at the scene with Don and, and Connie for that. A lot of it is is perception. First, we think that's Connie right. is the bartender. The next thing we know, Don hops over and he's the bartender. And yet they both know that secretly they're both actually the guys out there. That's right. 
no matter what happens, they still, what did he say? I still the head of a jackass, right? Uh, yet I'm a Republican just like them. So there's just all of this, where'd you come from? Where'd you start? Where are you going? How do you get? And I think that's very American. You know, in Europe, it's aristocracy. You don't move very easily. But America's built on this, at least this perception or this myth of social mobility. And to an extent, it actually is true that way, to an extent. But but this kind of hones in on that that mobility part, I think, a lot as well. It's not just random class references. I think that's very, very, very astute. Including what's, I think, a hugely underrated component of this episode because it's so much overshadowing it. But this Olive and Peggy thing, I think in the pilot, Peggy had a different secretary. Not the pilot, the the premiere, season premiere. Lola, we meet Olive and Olive hands her coffee and tea in this episode. And she says... Because I didn't know which one you want. Because Lola, Lola. says, "Oh, is that okay?" I missed Lola that reference. says, "Yeah." Because Lola says, "You don't do well with that second cup of coffee." And Peggy says, "Forget everything Lola told you." So yes, she got she got Lola replaced because Lola sucked. Peggy's journey in this episode is huge, totally massive, and and her relationship with Olive is wonderful. It's fascinating. I mean, to me, Olive represents sort of this amalgam of the Jones that have been watching out for Peggy, not watching out necessarily in an angelic way, but sort of, you know, keeping an eye on and making warnings to her. Bobby Barrett, who with the warnings and the advice, and certainly Peggy's mom her whole life with the warnings and the advice. I feel like Olive is a bit of all of those because they all recognize that she's different and she does things differently and it's going to get her in trouble. And it has gotten to her in trouble professionally and personally. And I think with Olive, with this, you don't want to go in there and you're not thinking about your future. You know, this is everything she's ever been told, basically. I feel like Peggy is sort of under the, <laughs> under the, under the influence of the pot, able to see very, very clearly this time and is able to respond in the moment to and Olive in front of her and say just exactly the right thing to respond with very deep empathy of how that person who's giving me the advice is actually thinking about my welfare. And I happen to know better. It's a little bit of a callback to what she said to Joan. Oh, you're trying to be helpful. Yeah, that was after she pushed her away <laughs> 10 times. And this time she didn't have to push her away. She knew instantly, I recognize this. I've been told stuff like this before. I do things way differently, and I have to stop these voices in my head. And you've never seen one of me. I got, I get that. You've never seen one of me. And you've seen a lot, but you've never seen one of me. That's cool. I get it. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to get all the things you want me to get and what I want. What I notice is there's empathy behind it. Empathy for the person who's not seeing her the right way which she didn't have for Joan for a long time. To me, this is just another marker in that growth, another rung on the ladder for Peggy to actually, it's not even just about the ability to get high and hang with the guys and get the great ideas. She's talented. It's that interpersonal part of it that really has been a sticking point for her. <laughs> you know that she said to Joan, get me a new secretary, and that she either said to Joan with words, I want someone who isn't young and pretty or Joan new, but get me a, get me a maternal type. Like, yeah. Get and, me an and old. Some of that has been, <laughs> right. you know, easier and, and definitely easier on Peggy, but she's like, Oh yeah, I know, honey, this I'm, I'm good. And Olive is wearing the cross on the outside of her blouse, which Peggy picks up on when she's high. You know, so these are all, these are all parts of Peggy's life 
you know, kind of all squished into one one overly watchful secretary. <laughs> and yeah, Joan did get her the the older secretary she probably asked for, and now she regrets it. I think to your point, she doesn't regret it. I think she actually finally is is learning how to socialize with all kinds of people. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the, the I love the idea that she kind of that's kind of springs her forward about oh, it's a hammock up on the roof and blah blah. It's a solid idea. That's a that we see we've seen commercials like that forever. <laughs> that shit that shit gets made. And Smitty's like, "You're working," and we're like, "Of course she's working." Yeah. Peggy is always about the work. That's that's the Don. Right. That's the Don in her. She can get high and actually use that the way you're supposed to be using well, the it. Way the, it uses the, it, the, way, the way Paul says he uses it. The way Paul says he uses it. And then she says to them all, go home. I got this, boys. Paul, yeah. They, they all smoke. Paul gets paranoid. Smitty gets lazy. She's continuing to work. It's a beautiful thing. So that's the office and that's Bacardi Eisenhower. I like that one. That's a good one. <laughs> well, when they started- with its Bacard delightful, its Bacard delicious. I'm like, are we gonna do the whole Cole Porter thing or lack of originality? <laughs> but there. I did think Bacardi Eisenhower was clever. Please be sweet, my chickadee, and when I kiss you, just say to me, it's delightful, it's delicious, it's delectable, it's delirious, it's dilemma, it's the limit, it's the So we get to we get to Joan and they're entertaining Greg's boss and one of Greg's colleagues and Greg is up for, I guess, chief resident at the hospital. Or thinks he is. The amount they convey with such little, you know, we always talk about that exposition problem. This is a masterclass, right? I mean, between the wives talking in the kitchen and it's suddenly dawning on Joan that she's not married to the best doctor in the bunch. No. Nope. And Greg's own insecurities, which we've already seen on full display. Just rewind a second. You've got the setting up of the party. Talk about a, a hierarchy situation. You're going to put this <laughs> chief surgeon or whatever he was at the head of your table mm -hmm. because that's where he thinks he belongs. But then she's got to show her herself to these wives. So it's all about positioning. And then ultimately, her, you know, and then there's Joan, the, the Joan that we know coming up with the solution. Some of this rang so true to me. My paternal grandmother, my dad's mother, she died young, died before I was born. I never knew her. But the, the rap on her was just that this is a woman who knew every rule about entertaining down to the, to the letter. Every social grade, like, like a Jackie O kind of. Yeah, yeah, kind of person. All those things about head of the table, people will sit there, here's an alternative, but like that to me, and the way Joan was able to kind of rattle off the way things should be. And a man in the house who frankly, like probably most men, doesn't have that, <laughs> that, that lobe of the brain to think these things through, is not in sync with her. But Joan's mastery of the rules and mastery of the social situation, which we know from from all this Sterling Cooper work, uh, just how brilliant she is in these social situations. Like, that's a real thing. Like, that's a real thing that women, I think, of that age, especially when entertaining was just more of a thing, frankly, uh, and it was a less casual society overall. Right. These things mattered. The women, and certainly that that wife of that chief surgeon, <laughs> knew, knew the rules that Joan was going by. I mean, she was impressed as hell with Joan, of course. 
from from my own background, that was something that like rang insanely true about the importance, not just that there were rules, but the importance of those rules. And you, I will not have those women thinking, I don't know what the right thing to do is, right? That that that's the key. That was a significant extra layer of the insight of like, no, no, no. There's there's many ways that ranking occurs to come back to what what you were talking about you now saw how skilled how accustomed Joan is inside this marriage to putting out the Greg fires she was like okay as we go through the evening with them a again we know we we in these little scenes in the kitchen and back out Greg's not in line for the chief residency number one Joan knows it because of that line from the nurse or from the from the wife well, what do we what do we find out? What does she say? She says, you're going to do great. I love knowing Greg has the ability to have a woman like you. And whatever happens, you know, you guys will be fine. Something to that effect. Joan picks up on it right away, which was the intended meaning <laughs> of don't be surprised when he doesn't get chief resident. You find out that money is a problem for all these people until it isn't. So suddenly she's seeing the answer to their problems are not coming. The way it's brought up is don't have a child. Don't have a child. You don't want that right now. And what's Greg been telling her all this time is I'm going to get you pregnant. So what that also tells us, without having to tell us, is Greg does not have the clearest view of his own capabilities and professional map. He thinks he's going straight to the top. Based on his own sense of who, of his whatever, of his privilege and of his nonsense. Then you find out he killed some guy on the table <laughs> and he, he does not have magic hands. He has what seems to be the opposite of magic hands because we already referred to somebody uh, who does have, you know, magic or whatever. No, he just says great hands. Great hands. Great, great hands. That guy's got great hands. So very embarrassingly for Greg, he's called out inadvertently, blah, blah, blah. And this is after Joan's been told by the wife that. Don't expect this. So it's sort of like, wait, I've been told, I've been told to get ready for the baby and start getting get ready for the promotion, get ready for the move. You know, you can say, is that Greg wishful thinking? Is it Greg trying to hide something that he knows isn't going to happen? Whatever the case is, this is all coming down on her. Is it Greg trying to compensate for being a shitty, horrible person everywhere he goes? Yeah, Greg is one big walking compensation. You get to the end where Greg makes Joan perform like a performing monkey Mm -hmm. for this crowd, and you see it in her eyes, the humiliation that she's enduring. I pin that back to there is a moment when she references the fact that she has a job in front of the guests. When they're making the crude jokes and she says, oh, this is like where I work. And that was it. That was the moment he was going to punish her for. Ah, right, right, right. I can't support my wife. Yeah. Piece of shit he is. What were you giggling about the other day? A code pink. What's that? They put a call over the PA whenever there's an attractive, unconscious female. (laughs) Never heard of that. (laughs) Me either. Sounds like where I work. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to check the roast. You need a hand? I don't think so. He's a walking humiliation. He he is a loser. Thin skin. What we're loser, learning yeah. is that he's a loser, is that he's not good at anything. He killed a guy. He doesn't have great hands. He's not producing any of the promises that he is making. But Joan is the one who gets punished for it because she dared to mention that she has a job in addition to being the perfect wife and wearing the best dress <laughs> I've ever seen with That's the right. roses. It's amazing. God, I hate that guy. And I I think in addition to that, 
It's also, you know, he's he's got to save face. He doesn't want the last thing that everyone remembers from the evening to be them consoling him about what they call a bad result. <laughs> yeah, they um, never say that, that. They never say that he died. All they ever say is bad result. Well, the looks on their face kind of tell it. We've seen enough medical shows that we know what that means. <laughs> That's right. And also on this show where doctors are absolutely painted in the worst <laughs> conceivable light whenever given a possibility, uh, an opportunity, uh, the doctor is a shit. You have pointed that out from the beginning oh, and God. you have not been proven wrong. So yeah, so Joan has to, and then we get, and that's that performance, which I think comes last of, of all of them actually. And it, yeah. And it's the most fascinating one to watch. Not only does, is she forced to perform, it's under duress. She does it. And of course she pulls it off amazingly. She's charming as hell and she's doing the little noises and and you're just charmed. You feel what's building in Joan, which is this insane rage over over being mis misled to, to to this degree and the constant humiliation that she has to deal with. She's enduring all this humiliation and all this fire quelling for what? For the promise of better that is not coming. There is no pot of gold. Yeah. And what's predictable is it's only gonna get worse because at some point there's gonna be a baby. I mean, it's just what that's, <laughs> that's what's right. predictable. That it's right there, you know, that this isn't gonna get better. Okay, so let's take a break and uh, come back, and we will talk about who won the Kentucky Derby in 1963. All right, get Googling. We have made some changes over at our Patreon page, including early episodes, expanded conversations, and opportunities for VIP invites to special live events that we will be doing on Zoom with you with audience Q&A. Or if you'd just like to support us, you can do that too. That's patreon.com slash theycoinditpod. Did we mention merch? Did we promise merch? Okay, the merch isn't ready. It's coming very, very soon and you will hear about it here. We've got some really cute stuff coming. And hey, if supporting us at Patreon doesn't work for you, that's totally fine. We still love you and we do not want you feeling any kind of guilt at all. But if you happen to, then head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a fantastic review. Anyway, let's get back to it. And we're back. Oh, we are. Lot to unpack here. Harry Crane in a seersucker suit. Little Rich Summer trivia. They have a new child. They have an eight-month-old baby named Beatrice. That was his new baby's name. Ah, oh, very cute. At the time. Probably not a baby anymore. It's just a but guess. But who's still probably named Beatrice. Probably still named Beatrice. So first of all, horse racing was big. Derby day was a thing. You didn't have to be super upper class. You know, Seabiscuit and all this kind of stuff. Like that's shit, Matt. That and the heavyweight champion of the world in boxing were two things that mattered. I believe you. I have just never paid. It's me. Well, you're all, you grew up after that era, as did I. Right, but it's still something of a thing. And I don't even know what the something is. And now my sister-in-law's from Louisville, Kentucky. She goes all out for this stuff. But I, I mean, so it's still, whatever cultural relevance it still had and has in my lifetime, I've never tapped into that. So I'm 10 steps behind. Don't they still sing My Old Kentucky Home at the start of the Derby? I mean, today. That's the song Roger was singing in blackface. So, <laughs> you know, the more we change. But my point is like, you know, a Derby Day party, you wouldn't have it. Like even a country, even the ritziest country club today is not having a Derby Day party. So I think people do have them today, not this year, not today. Today yeah, they have them in Lexington, though. Yeah, in Kentucky they might. I think they have them, but it's more of a novelty thing. Here's an excuse: we can have a theme party, kind of a thing. It's ironic if that's the case. This was an unironic Derby Day party, for sure. 
Clearly. <laughs> and the lack of irony was screaming out. Well, we get a bunch of stuff, right? First of all, we get to meet the mysterious man in the governor's office, Henry Francis. That scene, clearly Betty was, was moved and stuff, but I was a little horrified. Strange man touching your belly. He's blaming it on the martinis. Strange man hitting on a pregnant woman who's clearly married and pregnant. Like, he was moving in. Like, from the first beat, it wasn't, wow, you're pretty. And, you know, it wasn't <laughs> politely distant. It was, no. hi, honey, I'm home. And it was very strange. Like, I get why it affected her, because she's an idiot. <laughs> if she were to call him out, he would back off, you know, and, and, and kind of be able to play it off without having felt that he went too far. But he was going too far. But he was doing something inappropriate in a style that was unoffensive. But he was very charming. Great, great acting, as far as I'm concerned, because that's not easy to pull off, to, to be a charming sort of... <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving, moving in on the on the pregnant married lady. The reference of happy Rockefeller. They just got married, and what uh, they just what they just got divorced a month ago, and she has four kids. That was a parallel you Scandalous. couldn't you couldn't miss, though. Like <laughs> That's right. you know, once again, Betty kind of looks for cues as to what her options are in life, and she kind of went. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, oh, that's, huh, is that a thing I can do? And you seem nice. <laughs> in the Mad Men universe, there really would be a guy who looks like that, who comes in, does a weird thing and kind of leaves. It's not telegraphed that we're going to see this character again. No, no, we don't know anything about this guy, but it was an incredible interaction. But again, I, I was struck this time at how absolutely wildly brazen it was <laughs> <laughs> and I guess he could he could play off plausible deniability, but he wasn't going for that, is my point. No, no, he, he I think he knew instantly he would not need to do that. You know, he took a <laughs> shot for sure. And then, of course, the classic Betty, you know, I've always wondered, like, what carrying life in you is like. It's got to be transformative. Like, he didn't say all those words. And she's like... Betty Hostat Draper, I, I don't think about yeah. it. Never thought about it. <laughs> what do you mean? Other humans might, not me. Yeah, but that was part of the deniability, right? You know, it's like, what? I was just asking what it's like, you know, making a conversation here outside the ladies' room. There's no call to action. There's no come meet me. There's no can I call you. It's just all, it's all how do you do. It's all how do you do. So, But by the end of the party, she knows how to reach him. <laughs> and it was how do you do, and it was honey, I'm home. So it was both of those things. <laughs> yeah. Yep. See, it takes talent. You can't just you can't just pull that off. Yeah, that was something. Who are you waiting for? My dad. You can't show up to these things, stag. But then you run into people. She looked exquisite. She looked. She was fabulous. Like, we are going to this party because I bought a dress. That's right. And man, did she buy a dress! Gorgeous. Gorgeous. And Don knew she looked great. And uh, and everyone there knew she looked great. And she, she and Trudy are, you know, Trudy's the younger Betty and looks up to her and all the rest, which is, is fun to watch. I grew up in a place like this. And oh, boy. It is wild what we see there from from Roger and the, in the, the black face that does not require a disclaimer. <laughs> and no, um, almost nobody was horrified. No, I think Pete. Pete looked uncomfortable and Don, that was it. Don looked very uncomfortable. The women were laughing. Most people were laughing. Jane loved All it. All the women were laughing. And if you look at Pete standing next to Trudy, he looks, he's grimacing. So it's pretty much those guys. I think another sort of 
I don't know if it, if it qualifies as a theme, but we see it here a number of times is going back to Joan performing and all the rest. It's and 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 Peggy at the office. It's always the women bailing the men out of different situations. It's Joan obviously bailing out Greg. It's um, Peggy bailing out the guys on the creative team. It's even Jennifer bailing out Harry. Come on, I'm going to take you over. You're going <laughs> <you're gonna laughs> to talk social like a normal human being if I have to force you to. You just see a lot of that women bailing the men out. That's a theme in this entire series well, yeah, is that exactly. the women are doing the, the work. In this particular episode, because of how it ends with Jane, I didn't get that as a as a heavy message for this one. Jane also doesn't qualify as a substantive female in this crew, right? I mean, she's, I don't know, she's just not, not doesn't have the heft, I think, just personality-wise as, as others, but that's how she's drawn. Yeah, but she's a she's one of the she's wise. one of the wise she's, for sure. But she's not bailing anyone out of anything. One of the significant moments in this episode is this ending sequence with Jane and and I had I, which I had forgotten all about that. So you know we'll we'll get to that shortly. But to me, that's so much of wh- of where you're left is is that last sequence with drunk Jane and then Roger and then um, that final shot at the at the water. Well, it's clear that Roger's refusing to acknowledge that what he did carries consequences no he's a classic grievance guy everybody's he's the victim here just because nobody will accept this person nobody wants me happy poor 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 roger yeah Yeah, that's 100 percent of what it is people don't like to see you being happy really right really have you met this woman like she's horrible she's not only a child and my god do you see that i guess we got to it now so what you get is drunk jane and both Betty and Don are there to sort of catch her Mm -hmm. as she's losing her shit at the buffet. They bring her and they get her sitting down. And then Jane Jane manages in about 18 seconds to ruin two relationships or at least takes a good (laughs) shot at that. Exactly. The first thing is... She says the thing about, oh, are you two back together? I'm so happy. However, she phrases that. I knew that. you'd get back together, right? Oh, boy. And Betty is furious, as though Don is some gossip, which <laughs> Don is not a gossip, and was furious that Jane ever, ever indicated knowing about it even before the big betrayal where he finds out that Jane and, and Roger are together and talking about him. So, <laughs> so she says that Betty storms off. And then she grabs Don close to the privies there (laughs) on his suit and say, you never liked me. Why didn't you ever like me? Roger is all, what are you doing to my wife? (laughs) Like, really, it was the most swift slice through everybody I've ever seen. It was a double play, triple play. And yeah, and Roger's unwilling to see any of it. Don calls him out. People think you're foolish. And Roger's like, "What? You know, what? What are you doing? And how dare you? And what have I ever done to you?" And I was thinking, <laughs> "Remember that time you pawed at my wife? Remember that?" The way that Roger cuts down Don or th- attempts to cut down—I don't think—I think Don's able to let it roll off of him quite easily. But his line towards Don at the end. You know, um, the great thing about a place like this, and look at Slattery's face. I mean, there's great acting there. He's really, he's really attempting to hurt this guy. He is looking, he is, he is pulling out the knife and wants to cut Don. And the way that Rod, uh, the way that Roger cuts someone is to call out class. You can, you can have a nice thing and invite your friends, which left unsaid, of course, is you can also tell them to go home. 
get the fuck out of here and you're just you don't belong here i do don who has wanted nothing more all day than to not get be there. the fuck out of there <laughs> he's <laughs> never wanted to go yeah Jet betty keeps making him stay it's beautifully written that whole thing because it's earned you know it's been building since last season it's been kind of floating out there simmering between don and roger Roger, he's he's been waiting to cut Don like this, to have a reason to cut Don, because he resents Don for how talented he is. And now he has the reason to do that, because Don just called him foolish. And he earned it. He is being foolish, but he's not going to acknowledge it. And so just that line is, it's because it's so subtle. Mm. It's not, he's got the knife out, and it's clear what his intent is, but he doesn't call Don low class or something like that. He, he, he I don't know. It, it, there's so much under the surface there that it's perfect. Dan. What do you think Don saw when he saw Roger and Jane dancing? (laughs) That's a good question. I I think it's a moment where you see what you want to see. I don't think there's a black and white answer to that. I think Don sees this is Roger still pretending like he's happy. But it's also Don realizing that if Roger says he's happy, I can't prove to him he's not happy. It's sort of like a, a resetting of the status quo, right? Roger didn't take Jane behind the woodshed and and, and rip her out or, or or admonish her. She's not passed out somewhere. He's actually helping to support her, like literally physically, right? She'd probably be better. She'd probably be happier horizontal by now, but he's literally holding her up. And there was a great deal of tenderness. That's the part you can project onto it. You can look at it and go, oh, maybe they are really in love. But I don't think Don thinks that. Because he knows what kind of person Jane is, by the way. No question. He's not blinded by Jane or her looks or anything. And he was just reminded because she just said four shitty things. But she was on his desk and he knows. But yeah, I think that's the word that's coming to me now is is the tenderness. I think that what he saw was good or bad, right or wrong, love or... Something else. Something else. A couple that comes together can find that tenderness, and that isn't worthless, which is then what inspires him to go and find his beautiful wife and and have a moment. I love that walk from the tent over to where Betty is for Don. They, it kind of takes longer than it should because it's been a day <laughs> for Don. It has been a day. It's been a day for all of us watching this thing. But for Don, it's been a day. Um, And you feel that when he's walking over because it lingers a bit. (laughs) You know, it's remarkable. This is this is one of the one of the real standouts. This is a masterpiece. This one's a masterpiece. Yeah. yeah, And and they knew it when they were making it. You you can't be like, how's this one going to land? Season three has a lot of these. (laughs) You know, we got to say we're just into it here. Three episodes in. And this is probably the first that we could call a masterpiece. There's others <laughs> that we're gonna that we're gonna come across. Let's review the musical numbers because again, this is kind of a musical. You've got Roger's stellar, stellar performance mm-hmm. as a white man. That's right. <laughs> You've got Pete and Trudy. Again, we've we've both said it now. They really are this power couple. And looking at that, you're kind of like, when did Pete and Trudy learn all those moves? But you know, there's always that couple. There's they always would have. Yeah. there's always one couple who like fucking kills the floor. I don't know why Jennifer Crane had such a fit about it. There <laughs> is always that couple. You've got Paul and Jeffrey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jeffrey, who's still asking Peggy out. That's right. And you've got Joan. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe Don arguably, making a cocktail. Right? <laughs> Don making a cocktail. Yeah. If he had been humming, maybe that I would think have, these, I would... <laughs> Yeah, it's not, not musical in nature, but I've never seen a, an episode of a show do all this. 
in in 43 minutes or whatever. And we never saw a horse, right? No horses, <laughs> no ponies. So listen, let's take a, a breather and come back with quotes. Dan, what is your quote? An intoxicated Peggy telling everyone, you can go, I'm in a really good place right now. I just love that. I think, <laughs> I think Peggy's earned the right to tell everyone to get the fuck out. I've got this. Set up my dictaphone, Olive. <laughs> I loved that. <laughs> I'm going to spend the rest of the weekend getting high and working. I think it's just great. I'm in a really good place right now. Good. I actually questioned the language. Like that one felt a little- Too contemporary? Maybe. But I loved the vibe of it for sure. Because uh, yeah, she yeah. was. And she acknowledged, like we we watched her be in a really good place in that beautiful silhouette where she's stretching out in the office mm-hmm. and smoking that late night by herself. Well, that's the grind. Right? That's not the inspiration. That's the grind. But no, she's a the equivalent of a gym rat in basketball, right? She is there first, first in, last out. She's She's really feeling herself for sure. So back when they're setting up the party and Dr. McRapey says, Joni, I don't want to have a fight right now. Joan says, then stop talking. <laughs> Why I love that line is, you know, as I said earlier, she's, she's learning to, to manage this asshole. Not the first time Jones had to use that, yeah. But also in a more life approach kind of a thing, and I, this has just come up in my life and in my conversations lately, if you don't, if you don't respond, there's no fight. Um, <laughs> I, I have a friend dealing with kind of a harassment situation and emails are coming and just don't respond to the email. If you're just talking to yourself, there's no fight. It takes two. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, anybody who spends time on Twitter might have learned a lesson or two about that. But yeah, you know, I don't want to have a fight right now, then stop talking. Even though it was meant in a more cutting way, it's also really true. It's great advice. Yeah, it's great advice. It's wonderful, (laughs) legit, wonderful advice. It's also a way of saying, I'm not debating the merits of what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm really not getting into it with you, sir. Yeah. (laughs) It's great. It's great. (laughs) So that is that. Where do we go from here? Where we go from here is- What should we talk about next week? Next week, let's talk about an episode called The Arrangements. What do you think? We going to do it? What's wonderful, as you just mentioned, we're only at episode three. Like We are still in the revving up, things are sort of slow period, and we just got that episode. So you know, we're, we're, only, we're only going places. I have one word about The Arrangements. What's your word? Ho-ho. Oh my God. Thank you right. and good night. You're right, you're right. You're right. Thank you. <laughs> I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey, Coiners, we're so glad you're enjoying the show. One of the best ways to support us is to give us rave reviews on Apple Podcasts and to share us on social media. A great way to literally support us is at our Patreon, where we've got some extra content. Patreon.com slash theycoinditpod. If you're able, we love you either way. And we love your comments and your questions. Bring them on. Questions at theycoinditpod.com or find us on Instagram, Twitter, at TCI Mad Men Pod. We've got a lot more Mad Men to get to, and we can't wait. See you next episode.